0: and welcome to the Bioinformatics Chat. Today, my guest is Jacob Schreiber. Jacob is a PhD student at the University of Washington, and we will be discussing machine learning and specifically neural networks in genomics. Jacob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Jacob, uh, tell us a bit about yourself and uh, how you got to where you are.
1: So I'm currently, as you said, a graduate student at the University of Washington I did my undergraduate at the University of California, Santa Cruz, go fighting banana slugs. I started off in my freshman year thinking that I wanted to do psychology, and very quickly I realized that that wasn't actually what I wanted to do. What I wanted to do was more like biology, and not knowing exactly what I wanted to do, I had a great mentor at the time who advised me to just take chemistry and figure it out later, and that was probably a really good idea because my undergrad is kind of a sliding window where I started from thinking that I wanted to do organic chemistry originally um, to going into biochemistry to going into biology to going into bioinformatics to go and more into computer science and you know unfortunately at some point I had to stop and just get a degree and ultimately ended up getting a degree in uh, biomolecular engineering even though I was taking more computer science classes at the end. So at that point, I was really, even though I had this background in biology at this point, I was really interested in the computer science and particularly machine learning side that was happening. This was in around 2013 when I think the machine learning field was starting to uh, really pick up. I was inspired to go into this machine learning thing by, I think, it was the first iteration of Andrew Ng's machine learning course on Coursera. that I took that and I thought that was way more interesting than my coursework. And so when I was applying to grad schools, I was thinking that I really wanted to continue that. So I applied to graduate schools and got in at the University of Washington. And so while I'm officially in the computer science program there, my advisor, Bill Noble, is in the genome science department. And most of the work that I do is related somehow to biological data.
0: That's a very cool story. And uh, before we get into the machine learning part, I know that you're involved in the ENCODE consortium. Tell us about the project itself, about ENCODE. I think a lot of people will be interested in learning more about that and also about your involvement there.
1: Yeah, so the ENCODE project is a nationwide consortia that is hosted in the United States and funded, I think, primarily through the NIH. Uh, I may be wrong about that, though. And it is basically a collection of researchers from many, many universities and affiliated researchers, I think, from around the world that are trying to annotate the human genome. That this started off at first by just trying to sequence the human genome. And people thought that if we could sequence the human genome, then we could probably figure out everything about it. But then, like most things, we realized that the human genome was actually really, really complicated. And so now we've the ENCODE project has kind of spun off into a variety of um, sub-projects. One of the big things that it does is it tries to characterize this thing called epigenomic state. Essentially, you'll have your genomic sequence, which, aside from mutations, doesn't really change from one cell type to the next. But then you have epigenomic state, which are be small modifications either to the genome itself or to the histone proteins that the genome is wrapped around that do vary widely from one cell type to the next and are associated very strongly with various cell type-specific biological activity. For example, one of the main questions we have in biology is trying to understand gene expression and why genes express differently from one cell type to the next. Well, they're known to be very heavily influenced by various modifications of histones that change from, you know, like your liver cells to your kidney cells. And the ENCODE project is... Heavily involved in not just collecting this data, but also standardizing the experimental procedures and the downstream computational procedures that analyze the data. Because a big problem was that conceptually, multiple labs can agree that we need to characterize some biological phenomena, but the approach that they take differs, either substantially, which is kind of obvious to detect, or in small ways, which produces biases and fluctuations in the data that people don't quite catch. And so this can cause a reproducibility process uh, problem if you have two different labs producing data in slightly different ways. One of, in my opinion, the key contributions of the ENCODE project and its related projects like uh, the Roadmap Compendium Project, uh, IHEC, which is the International Human Epigenome Consortium, and GTEx, uh, is that they focus heavily on trying to standardize these data sets so that outside researchers like me can just easily download a bunch of data and compare it. They also do some work in studying the three-dimensional structure of the genome, you know, the nuclear architecture, and essentially just trying to get all this data for people to use and then get the computational people to work on it and get everyone working together. Uh, But its primary goal is basically to try to produce an annotation of the genome. Uh, We want to understand where all the functional elements are which cell types these functional elements are active in and how they interact with each other
0: so the project itself standardizes the data, but every lab every participant is free to analyze the data however they they wish yeah i would
1: well I would say that the consortium has proposed um has proposed standardization tech uh, approaches, and they also They also uh, will process the data that's produced by the data generation facilities. And so they make all the data publicly available. But it's, I think, the computational people who are involved with the project that do a lot of the heavy lifting on the computational analysis side.
0: We will be talking about your tool called Avocado, which is... uh one of the ways to make sense of this data and uh, there are also some competing or some previous tools. So does the project itself have any say in, uh, you know, which of these tools uh, is is better or is any of the tools is endorsed by the project? No, I
1: think that the project does a really good job of trying to remain somewhat agnostic to this, that their goal is basically to try to solve these really big Questions. And you don't solve these really big questions by, you know, endorsing one group's tool over another group's when both of the groups are involved in the project. And so in our paper, we propose several lines of reasoning why we think our tool is better than the other ones that are out there. But none of the tools are officially endorsed.
0: But are there clear objectives? Like, when will these people say that? Okay, now we've solved this. Now we've annotated the the genome, and uh, our task here is is done.
1: I think that with many areas of science, there's not a clear there's not a clear knowing when you're done with a problem. Like for example, there was a draft of the human genome that was you know submitted and approved in around two thousand one, but even to this day, we haven't actually completed the human genome. There are still all of these areas that are very difficult to analyze that are a primary interest of researchers now, trying to figure out. But we don't have a full map of all around three billion nucleotides in the human genome yet, or really for any species. Um, and so, much like that, that I think that ENCODE's problem statement will last for a very long time because this is just so complicated. And I don't think any individual tool or method is going to be able to solve it, but it will be able to yield some insight into the, you know, it'll it'll be able to chip away a little bit at this massive problem that they've set out for themselves.
0: I already mentioned the project you work on, Avocado, which is sort of in the, in the same category of making sense of all the, uh, genetic and epigenetic data. Tell us a bit about, you know, what Avocado tries to accomplish and uh, how it got started.
1: Yeah. So when collecting all these epigenomic experiments, you can kind of think of them in your head as a matrix, that on one axis, you have all of your different types of cell types. You know, you have skin cells, you have heart cells, you have brain cells. But even more than that, you have many different types of heart cells. You might you might have cells from your left ventricle and cells from your right ventricle. You might also have cells at different stages of development because different fetal cells are different from the more adult versions. Um, in addition to development, you also have different forms of um, the cell cycle, that stem cells, that ultimately turn into heart cells are very different from the differentiated heart cells that they turn into. So you have all of these different axes of different types of cells. And ultimately, there are many, many hundreds or thousands, or you can think of it even as a continuum. Lots of different types of cells in your body. And so we've been able to characterize some of them, but not all of them. And the way that we characterize them is by measuring various biological activity. I mentioned before that you can look at these modifications of either the DNA itself, like DNA methylation, or through modifications of the histone proteins that uh, the DNA is wrapped around. This is very common, that very some histone modifications are very tightly correlated with gene expression. But there's also other epigenomic data like chromatin accessibility. And what this basically measures is how available is that region of the genome to the outside world. And you can imagine that this is a very powerful assay, because regions of the genome that are accessible to the outside world are likely to be interacting with various proteins, like RNA polymerase that then turns DNA into RNA and then into proteins. Or maybe... An accessible region will interact with some transcription factor that binds to a region and then modulates gene expression. So all of these assays help characterize that specific cell type, but they vary from one cell type to the next. And so what uh, researchers do is they want to run as many of these different assays as they can in as many different cell types as possible. Unfortunately, we don't have the money or the manpower to run every single assay in every single cell type. So we were looking at this one data set from the the Roadmap Epigenomics Project. Um, So this this data called the Roadmap Compendium has around 127 cell types in it and around 24 different assays in the block of it that we decided to look at. It's very much an incomplete matrix that only 33% of the potential experiments have actually been performed. And even more than that, this kind of this l shaped structure to the data, this is because some cell types have been determined to be of have been determined to be very important, and so researchers want to run as many assays as possible in that specific cell type in order to study it as well as possible. then there are other there are some assays that have been determined to measure um, a wide diversity of different biological knowledge and so in this project, there was a set of five assays that were run in all cell types. So you can imagine that kind of has an L, where on one side, you have this set of five assays running all of your cell types. And on the other axis, you have some cell types that are very heavily characterized. And then the rest is missing. So the problem that we were facing is, can we impute the experiments that have not yet been performed using the data that does exist? This is very similar at first glance to a project like the, the Netflix challenge, where the idea was that you, know, you go on Netflix and you rate a bunch of shows. And the idea is that if you have this matrix where you have users on one side, shows on the other, and their ratings as the values in the matrix, can you predict how a user would rate a show that they haven't yet watched? Here in this case, we're trying to see, can we predict an experiment uh, that hasn't yet been performed? But there's a third axis to this that I haven't yet talked about, that you have cell types on one side, assays on the other side, and then on the third axis, you have the entire length of the genome. Because you get measurements for each one of these experiments of every position along the human genome. And so you basically have a tensor with three different dimensions, and one of them is very, very long. That, in this case, there are 3 billion positions in the human genome, but we are modeling this at 25 base pair resolution just to try to be tractable. And that ends up with around 115 million positions uh, in one of the dimensions of this tensor. So our first aim was, can we try to predict the experiments that haven't yet been performed? The second aspect was, well, ultimately, people want to try to interpret all of this data. The third of the roadmap companion that's been collected is around 1,014 experiments. That's a lot of experiments. And if you're trying to make sense of all of that data, it's going to be super complicated, not just because there's a lot of data, but also because it's highly redundant. There are some biases in it. Uh, there are some things that you'd like to clean up about it. And so our our first goal was to try to impute more experiments, giving us around 3,000 experiments total. But that's going in the wrong way. If you impute all of these experiments perfectly accurately, now you have 3,000 experiments instead of 1,000 that you're trying to make sense from. And so you know, it's useful in the sense that now you have measurements for all of these assays and all these cell types, but it's even worse because it's now more computationally intractable to deal with. So our second goal was, can we learn a low-dimensional latent representation of this data? Basically, can we go the other way? Can we go from 1,000 experiments down to, say, 100 informative numbers that are representative of that that position in the genome? And so this is in line with the original ENCODE goals because their original problem statement was, can we annotate the human genome? And this, you know, while... Studying different cell types is, of course, a important part of that. But ultimately, what they want is an annotation that's kind of cell type agnostic. And so our goal here, can we reduce these thousand facts that span a 100 different cell types into a singular representation of human epigenomics, is very much the type of thing that they're interested in.
0: So they are interested in a picture that's not dependent on different cell types, but... Um... Do you have a track per assay, or do you also want to compress all the assays into a single track that sort of characterizes the the various genomic elements?
1: Well, yeah. So what we end up doing is we adopt an approach called deep tensor factorization. And the first part of that is tensor factorization. The idea is that you learn a latent representation uh, orthogonally on all three axes of these tensors. So what you do is you learn a latent representation of the assays. And you learn a lamed representation of the cell types, and you learn a lamed representation of each genomic position. And each of these lamed representations is independent from each other. That's the goal of factorization, factorization which is to learn a lamed representation that captures only that captures aspects of only that axis. And so you do end up learning a representation of all of the assays. And we've shown in follow up work that this you know encodes a lot of information about the. Um, about how various biological phenomena interact with each other. Uh, but our goal here was to take the genome access. This is going to be a single, unified representation that condenses all the information from all cell types and axes into a singular representation that is independent of any specific assay or any specific cell type.
0: Okay, so let's go there. Um, th- there were quite a few words that may not be familiar to everyone. So first of all, tensors. I think um, we already encountered tensors in uh, one of our episodes, but tensors in this context are basically multidimensional arrays. So in your case, I think it's three-dimensional, where the three axes are um, the genome axis, the assay axis, and the cell type axis. And uh, this is just a way you choose to organize the Information, right? The the data collected through these experiments, or the data that, that you then then impute. And uh, what is tensor factorization?
1: Yeah, so tensor is just a fancy word that basically means, as you said, n-dimensional. That that a an order two tensor is just going to be a matrix. An order three tensor it basically looks kind of like a cube, though it doesn't have to have the same size on each dimension. Uh, And so if you basically think of it kind of like a cube, what we end up doing is you want to learn latent representation for each uh, orthogonal dimension. The idea is we have this big cube of data and uh, we want to learn a far more compressed representation such that we can easily reconstruct the values in the tensor. So the idea is that um, with linear tensor factorization, you want to learn factors such that when you take the dot product between all three of them, you're able to recapture the tensor.
0: So this is a a little bit like uh, PCA for for two dimensions, but you generalize it to three dimensions. Would would that be fair to say?
1: It's similar to PCA, that with PCA, what you end up doing is you learn a representation that's identical along the two axes. Um, But it's basically like matrix factorization itself, because matrix factorization is going to learn one representation for the rows and a separate representation for the columns. And the idea is that if you take the dot product between these two, I think sometimes they're called skinny matrices, then you can recapitulate the values that are in the matrix itself. And so here, uh, and also that when you recapitulate those values, it's thought to kind of remove noise and to remove... Uh, basically give you a cleaner estimate of the data that's really in there. And so here it's the exact same thing, except now we have a third axis. And so now you're taking the dot product between three skinny matrices instead of two in order to recapitulate the values that are in the tensor. Uh, So also we extend this by, instead of doing linear tensor factorization, we're doing deep tensor factorization.
0: Right. So so the normal tensor factorization was a previous project, which I think was called for D or something like that
1: predicted yeah so this was work done by another student in the lab and it was essentially linear tensor factorization but it was an ensemble of models and so what this ended up giving you was um, it would not solve the problem where you wanted to learn a low dimensional compression of the data because you ended up representing each position with I think like 800 parameters anyway and so going from 1,000 experiments to 800 parameters ended up not being that big of a compressor.
0: So you're saying that in order to build a precise enough model, this is just how many of the components they had to uh, to assume in order for this to be faithful to the data?
1: Yeah, so one of the weaknesses of that model, uh, to, to be clear, that model was very cool at the time,
0: that I thought that it was
1: the appropriate way of solving the imputation challenge, which is why I thought that it would be cool to build off of that work. But one of the challenges that it faced was that as a linear factorization model, you had to have the same number of factors along each dimension. And so you can imagine that if you have a small matrix like, you know, the cell types and assays like 127 different cell types, 24 different assays, you can probably fit any of that in memory. But if you have 115 million positions along the genome representation, that's going to kind of put a limit on the number of genomic factors that you can learn. And so um, you may think that you need more factors at to represent each of the cell types from each other, but fewer factors on the genome axis. But you can't do that in the linear factorization setting without, you, you need the same number of factors on each dimension.
0: Right, so so going back to my very imperfect PCA analogy, that's like the, the number of principal components that you choose, right? Exactly.
1: And so you need to choose the number of principal components to be the same for each one of your dimensions. But the problem is that as you, you know, because the genomic axis is very big, that if you choose a very large representation, you're going to have a huge memory blow up. But if you choose a small um, representation, you may not be able to capture all of the details about the cell types and assay uh, dimensions which are very rich in information. And so our solution was to incorporate a deep network. And so instead of needing to do this complicated ensemble of models, we have a single unified model that instead of taking the dot product between these three matrices, you feed them into a neural network. And so in order to make a prediction, you take the cell type embedding, the assay embedding, you know, the link factors. And the genome latent factors, you concatenate them all together and you feed them into a neural network. And so, in addition to you know, just building on the deep learning hype that you know is happening right now, that it has a very it has two very important practical effects. The first is that now you can select a different dimensionality for each one of your uh, dimensions, and so we use that in order to find an appropriate dimension size um, for each axis independently. And this, you know, this can be very big. But for the assays that we found that you'd want to have like 256 dimensions representing each one of your assays because those are super rich in information. But you only want to have like 32 dimensions for your cell types. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's a very big difference that's not possible when you do normal tensor factorization.
0: When you say that you need 256 values for each assay, so a type of assay would be something like RNA-seq or, or chip-seq or ATAC-seq, right? Exactly. And, uh, the number, the number of assays itself is much lower than that, right? Than 256. So yes. wouldn't this be redundant? Couldn't you express this? Like it, it seems to me intuitively that the maximum number of values that you need to describe an assay shouldn't be larger than the number of assays. Otherwise, this is sort of redundant. Exactly. So you bring up the point that
1: basically, like in your example, if you were ch- doing PCA on a something that had D dimensions and you chose to have D components, your PCA wouldn't do anything. Yeah. It doesn't even make sense to want to have like D plus one principal components from a D dimensional thing. The issue here is that because we're dealing with a tensor, that the total number of entries in the tensor is equal to the size of the genome uh, times number of assays times number of cell types. And so because there are a lot of complicated phenomena that can happen along the genomic axis, it actually makes sense to have a larger assay representation than the total number of assays in there. Because in this case where you're factorizing along three dimensions instead of two, there are multiple approaches that you can take to try to do this decomposition. The one that's going to yield the most compression is the one that we adopted, where you have a matrix independently for assays, cell types, and the genomic representation. But you can imagine that instead you have these pairwise latent representations, where you learn a latent representation that in two dimensions for assays times genome representation and assays times cell types and cell types times genome representation. Because when you factorize, you just go into a lower dimensional space. so You can go from three dimensions to you know two dimensions and in that case you wouldn't want to have more factors than the total number of entries in the tensor.
0: Mhm. I was just thinking that uh if you have the number of dimensions equal to the number of assays that then your neural network could in principle learn that and you would choose like just a diagonal matrix and your neural network could learn that you know if th- if, if there's one in this row then we apply these rules because it's a neural network you can do anything but mm-hmm. i guess you you want also to limit the the size of the network itself and so there is a compromise there so you can have a larger network and fewer dimensions or more dimensions in smaller network this is how yeah it works. so i
1: think that another way of i think that another way of saying that what i was saying before is that if you have a matrix with d dimensions and you try to learn something that has more and you try to learn a representation where each if you're trying to like factorize that and so the latent representation for the columns has is equal to the number of rows you know if you have a d by d dimensional matrix and you try to learn a latent representation that has d hidden split states you can just copy the matrix and you yeah. get a representation that's perfect but here for each assay you don't have a number of values equal to the number of cell types um, you have a number of values equal to the number of cell types times the whole genomic axis. And so your representation has to compress all of the data of that assay along the entire genome. And so 256 is a very small compressor of the 115 million times, you know, 127 cell types that exist.
0: Right, right.
1: So the model, in addition to being a tensor factorization approach, also incorporates a deep neural network. The idea here is that instead of Using a dot product in order to combine uh, in order to combine the latent factors, it uses a neural network. Uh, and so, if you're making a prediction for a specific value in this tensor, if you're using a normal tensor factorization approach, you take the latent representation corresponding to the assay and multiply it by you know take the dot product with the latent representation corresponding to that specific cell type and that specific uh, genomic position, and you have these three vectors. You just take the element wise multiplication and then you sum them up that's the generalized dot product and so here what we do is we take those lane representations the three vectors and instead of take the dot product between them we concatenate them together and feed them into a dense neural network. This gives us the ability to model nonlinear relationships between these three axes and these are actually super important that we found empirically that the model does significantly better than the linear um it does better than the linear factorization approach that was done by my colleague uh both in two in two ways. the first is that yield better imputations, which is the main task that it was trained on. but remember that our goal here our second goal here was to learn an informative low dimensional representation so what we ended up doing afterwards is we took the pre trained genome representation, the the genome representation that was trained during this imputation task. And we said, can we use this to predict other things that our model wasn't trained on? One of the common things that people do is they'll try to use various measurements of epigenomic data to predict things like gene expression. So we said, how well can we build a model to predict gene expression using epigenomic data like other people do? And how well can we build a model that uses these learned latent representation to predict gene expression, and what we found is that in all of the 47 cell types that we looked at, that odd latent representation was able to predict gene expression much better than using uh, the epigenomic data from a single cell type. Uh, like trying to predict gene expression in the cell type K562 using epigenomic data in the cell type K562. And this wasn't some one specific phenomena either. If we tried to predict uh, promoter-enhancer interactions, which are these you know, interactions in three-dimensional space between functional elements that our model outperformed using the epigenomic data as well. If we tried to predict replication timing, which is basically a binary measurement of whether or not this segment of the genome uh, replicates during early-stage replication or late-stage replication, we were able to outperform epigenomic data. And when we tried to predict some high-level feature of chromatin architecture called fires or frequently interacting regions, uh, we were able to outperform it. That is amazing. Yeah, this was really surprising to us that we were able to encode so much information in this uh, representation.
0: And so so this is just using the data along the genome, so how many dimensions do you have there? So
1: when we're making these predictions using the cell type-specific epigenomic data, that that can range from between five assays and 24 assays um, to make predictions in that cell type. In comparison, the linked representation that Avocado learned was 110 dimensions. And to be clear, this was a single representation, that this wasn't one representation per cell type. This was a single representation that was able to make predictions across a variety of cell types more accurately than the cell type-specific data. And so we thought this was really interesting, and we figured that ultimately one of the sources of information that Avocado was really heavily utilizing was the fact that it was trained on multiple cell types of data. And so what we included as a baseline next was, what if we build a model that uses all data from all cell types to make predictions in some specific cell type? This is basically a control that says, if we um, just use all of the data that Avocado was Trained on, can we build a model that outperforms using the cell type specific data? And so, to be clear, this is like trying to predict uh, gene expression in K562, not using just measurements of epigenomic state in K562, but using measurements of epigenomic state in all 127 cell types we care about. And kind of surprisingly, we found that this dramatically outperformed using data from a single cell type across every single task. Uh, What we found is that in tasks that involve complex regulatory activity, like predicting gene expression and predicting promoter-enhancer interactions, that the avocado representation outperformed using all of the data from all the cell types, showing that it does indeed seem to get rid of some biases and redundancy. Um, Whereas in tasks that involved very low-resolution chromatin architecture stuff, like the fires and the replication timing, that using the full-brew map even outperformed avocado. So this is kind of surprising, because when you look at the literature, almost all prediction tasks are phrased as, we're going to take an epigenomic state from some particular cell type and predict epigenomic state in that same cell type. And that makes sense. If I want to predict gene expression in the cell type, I'm going to use the data from that cell type. But what we found analytically was that you should be using data from many, many cell types because we think this is going to have a regularizing effect. You can imagine that if there was some noise in your experiment uh, that you thought that some region was an accessible peak, but it wasn't really an accessible peak, that it would not show up as an accessible peak in any other cell type. And so this may serve as a de facto regularization of your um, machine learning model, basically as some notion of confidence in epigenomic state in the particular cell type you care about.
0: And to be clear, in those two cases, uh, the first case when you use uh, the data just for this particular cell type and the second case when you use all the cell types, the model itself, uh, both the tensor factorization model and then the predictive model, uh, the model itself is the same. It's just a matter of training on a different set of data, different size of data. Exactly. So in all of these comparisons,
1: we use gradient boosting uh, for a few reasons. The first reason is that it proves very competitive across a variety of tasks. The second is that it's invariant to the scale of the data. And so we didn't want to be introducing some form of biases associated with uh, different scales of data across different cell types or something, that all tree-based models are rank-based.
0: Can you talk uh, about what gradient
1: boosting is? Yeah, so gradient boosting is a general framework where uh, what you do is you train a machine learning model to predict not the actual value you care about, but the difference between uh, what your model is currently predicting and the truth. And so you're basically trying to take steps along the gradient. We will start off with some like very basic um, prediction value. Like let's say that it's a regression task, and you're trying to predict a continuous value and you start off by predicting 10 for everything then you're going to get some some error associated with each one of your training points and so you'll train like a decision tree to predict not the actual value you care about but the difference between 10 and what the real value is then in the next step you say okay well, i'm going to train a decision tree to predict the difference between you know whatever i'm predicting for each point now and the truth and so what you're doing is called gradient boosting because you're performing this procedure called boosting on the gradient you're trying to predict the difference between where you are right now and the truth and so this is very this is a very powerful approach because it allows you to focus on regions that are very difficult using some trees then once you have uh, once you have that area covered then you can move on to other
0: so uh, this is how you predicted the gene expression based on your latent factors, and uh, and so you use decision trees uh, for for this? Yeah, so we use the
1: same type of model for all of the predictive tasks. As you said, all we did is we alternated the feature sets, that we have the exact same labels, exact same positions, exact same model. All we're doing is we're changing the features that are input to the model.
0: That makes sense. What I'm even more curious about is how you train the neural network in the first place because it's it sounds like very difficult because you simultaneously have to estimate or to learn the weights inside the network and your latent factors so you don't know either either of those how do you how do you run this
1: so at first glance it seems like it'd be a very difficult procedure because people think of tensor factorization as its own thing and separately they think of neural networks as its own thing. And so training them must be this type of um, complicated training procedure. But in fact, you can pretty simply train both of them at the same time. Uh, if you're familiar with models in NLP, they'll have these they'll have these things called embedding layers for the words. And so it's very common in these uh, models to see an embedding layer be the input to your model, and then in the NLP setting you typically have recurrent models or whatever in this case what we have is one embedding layer to represent the cell types one to represent the assays and one to represent the genomic positions and then we just concatenate those and feed them into a neural network and this is a very standard procedure for most neural network packages out there like our model is just implemented using vanilla keras operations uh, trained using Fiano. Uh and so Uh, By doing this, you're able to train the factors in the tensor factorization jointly with the neural network. And just by letting it train for a really long time, you get uh, good representations of everything.
0: Right, but still, it sounds like a very ill-specified task. And I guess, depending on the time of the day, you can arrive at a very different representations for the same thing, right? Because the neural network is adapted to the way the these embedding layers represent the data. Exactly, this is definitely not a convex task. Well, it's it's two things.
1: First, that you're going to get you're going to get stuck in local optima. That's almost a guarantee because of, uh, as you said, it's an ill specified task. There's no single solution. The second is that it requires a lot of compute time, and what we're finding is that it actually requires a lot more compute time than we initially thought. That basically we expected that we could train this in like essentially 800 epochs. And I'm not gonna explain exactly what an epoch is in this case, but it seemed like when we looked at the training and the validation errors that um, the model was done after 800 epochs. And so we ended up just continuing from there. In later follow-up work, we found that uh, if we let it keep training for 8,000 epochs, that it was still training. It just took a really long time afterwards. And to put this in context, training for 800 epochs would take, like, overnight to do the entire genome. And so that's overnight using a cluster of, like, three or four GPUs, which is a huge amount of compute. And when we boosted up to uh, 8,000 epochs, it was taking, like, a week to train. And so to me, like, I've been dealing with this for so long, like, a week of compute isn't really that big a deal for me. But I can realize that if I'm trying to describe this to other people, I'll be like, oh, yeah, I'll just take a week on a cluster of GPUs. No big deal. That's not really everybody's life.
0: Right. But once uh, this model is trained on the encode data, then the users can presumably leverage the data and uh, combine with their own data in in a faster way, not requiring a week of uh, GPU time? Exactly. So
1: there are, there are two aspects to this. The first is that... Once we're done training, you have this representation that can be used. You don't need to train it for your separate task. Uh, if you're trying to predict some genomic phenomena, you can just use our representation that we provide in the paper. You don't need to do any training of any type in order to uh, use it for your ta- I mean, you do have to train a machine learning model that takes it in as input, but presumably you're already doing that. The second thing is that in our, some of our follow-up work, we found that uh, if you want to make imputations – for new cell type and assay combinations, you can add in new cell types and assays to our representation fairly easily. The procedure for doing that is basically that you freeze the neural network and the genomic representation, and if you're trying to add in a new assay, you also freeze the cell type representation. And if you're trying to add in a new cell type, you freeze the assay representation, such that all your training, the only parameters you're training, are the position in the latent space for either the new assay or the cell type. And so the code that we provide on GitHub uh, allows you to do this fairly easily. We handle all the freezing and retraining and everything for you. And what we found is that in only a few minutes of training, you're able to add in a new cell type. Or, you know, I think that in our our paper, we add in three new cell types at the same time and it takes like two minutes of training uh, to do. So that's a lot more tractable for people. And we found that, If we trained them, if we added in new cell types using only DNase data, which is super cheap and readily available, that we were able to make very accurate predictions of transcription factor binding uh, for a variety of transcription factors for all three of them. And they were very cell type specific predictions. It wasn't just some sort of blur.
0: And uh, if, let's say, you wanted to adapt this to a different species... Uh, would you be able to freeze the representation of assays and and retrain the, the genomic and uh, cell type representations?
1: Yeah, so we actually have some really interesting work going on right now where we're trying to adapt this across species. One of the downsides is that humans are very well characterized and other species are not. And so there's not going to be that much data for them. And, so, and it's also not nearly as well curated. So uh, it may not be as easy to perform.
0: But on the other hand, this, this is precisely the reason why you would want to reuse this data from humans. So you, exactly. you get at least this, this much of information.
1: Exactly. There's this repeated topic that comes up in machine learning of trying to leverage high-resource data sets in order to improve low-resource data sets. And so this is the opportunity that's paired with the challenge, that what we're trying to do is, uh, what we're able to do, and we have preliminary results for, is showing that if we, are able to, if we learn a representation of the mouse genome, um, using a network that's pre-trained using human data, that we are able to make predictions for transcription factors, like for how transcription factors would bind in mice, given that that experiment has never been performed in mice. Uh, and so we think this is incredibly powerful. And so we're get, we're talking with some people who are very heavily invested in mouse research to try to figure out how to best l- leverage this model. Because that's kind of amazing that if you that our model is able to make predictions for phenomena of which we have no experimental data. And if you can, you know, prove that that's real, then I think that that would allow us to characterize a variety of species in ways that we're never going to get to experimentally.
0: It's also curious how these two tasks that you were talking about, the first of imputation and the second of um, building the compressed representation, making sense of the data, how these two tasks interplay. So on the one hand, you really are interested in the insights. So you don't care about imputing the, the experiments if you already have the answer that you want to obtain from those experiments, if you already have the making sense part. But on the other hand, If you are able to successfully impute missing values, that sort of brings you confidence in your model and in your data. And, uh, you know, that your internal representation or latent representation is actually trustworthy.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, of course, you validate your model. On experiments that you have collected, that we validate our model using five-fold cross-validation, where we train on four-fifths of the assays and we see how well it can predict the held-out assays. That's a natural validation. But as to your point, where people would care more about um, people would care more about the imputations for experiments that haven't been performed, that really varies from scientist to scientist. Some people would care. We we'll care about imputations for experiments that haven't been performed. There's a lot of evidence that shows that the imputations of experiments that have been performed served as a denoised version of the track. Now if you just look at these tracks, a lot of them look significantly cleaner in the imputed versions than in the experimental versions. And in our paper, we show that using imputed versions of the real, of the real assays can yield better predictive performance on various tasks. And so we have some hypotheses as to why this is. But we can, like, a lot of these experiments are in, very imperfect. Uh, these experiments, called chip seek experiments, are hugely valuable in that they encode a lot of information in them. But they do have a lot of biases, they have a lot of noise in them. Um, sometimes things just happen when you're running the experiment that's weird. Uh, I think that the one of the first imputation approaches, Chrome Impute, spent a portion of their manuscript talking about how you're able to do quality control using the imputations and the experimental data. That if there's a if the difference between the two is high enough, you can imagine that what's happening is that there was some quality control issue. they are, they are able to identify things called sample swaps, where something was called you know, assay one when in fact it was assay two. And so you can imagine if the experimental data for some assay differed significantly from the imputed version, you could go in and be like, hey, what happened here? And, you know, maybe the imputed version was just super wrong. But what's more likely is that either there was a sample swap, such that all of the imputed signal would be incorrect, or maybe just a very low-quality experiment. And they show that they find some some low-quality data in the compendium as well, using the imputations. So these imputations have a lot of utility to them. There's a lot that you can do with them. And a, I think there's a lot of research that uh, can be u- that can be done using these imputations.
0: That sounds very useful indeed. I was just thinking that a priori there is no reason to combine these two tasks in a single model or a single tool. In principle, you could have a separate model for imputation, a separate model for sort of dimensionality reduction and, and factorization. But um, this just provides this. Uh, free benefit. So, if you take, I think, most of the dimensionality reduction algorithms um, like, I don't know, T-SNE, right? There is no great way to validate whether this T-SNE makes sense. You could color the dots by the, you know, cell type or something like that and just look whether the clusters make sense to you, but every person interprets T-SNE Differently, uh, but here you have uh simultaneously because it's a single model uh you have a sort of proof that your you know this latent representation is actually valid because it has this predictive power exactly, but it serves as you know imputation
1: can serve as one of the tasks you're using to validate this latent representation. It's a very powerful task because, you know, it's a very high resolution, sophisticated task, very structured that you need to be able to get correctly. It's true that there are other approaches. Like theoretically, one could just run PCA on all this data and try to compress it into a lower dimensional representation. But we don't think that's nearly as natural as this factorization approach because many cell types are very similar to each other and you want to be able to capture the relationships between all cell types to each other in its own linked representation and the similarity across all assay in its own. And so explicitly factorizing out this structure, we think, is the is the natural way of doing this. Um, and, you know, the experimental results kind of match up with that. You're right that there are other approaches to learning uh, linked representation, and we compare it against some of them in our paper. And they don't perform nearly as well as uh, deep tensor factorization.
0: So uh, you put your model training on a cluster of GPUs and they run for a week. And then you look at your results and the results look awesome. Your your error is, is very low and you're happy, but all maybe not as good as you think, right? Because there is this pitfall that... Uh, you may fall into. And uh, you wrote a short preprint about this. So so tell us what we should look out for when we train our models.
1: Yeah, so there's a pitfall that people might you know, encounter when they're building models to make predictions across cell types. And it's something that I'm, this type of this setting where people are making predictions across cell types is becoming increasingly common in the literature. And it makes sense that you want to build a model and you want to use all the available data that you have right now in order to make predictions for cell types where maybe the experiment hasn't yet been performed. Kind of like imputation, but not nearly as high, not nearly as like unified as the model, or it's a much more complicated phenomenon that doesn't clearly fit into the imputation setting. Um, this is in contrast with the cross-chromosomal setting, which a lot of people use, which is where you'll train your model on some chromosomes and make predictions for the held out ones. That when you're doing cross-cell type predictions, you care about how well your model generalizes to new cell types. This can be a very different question than how well your model uh, generalizes to new chromosomes. And depending on what your task is, you might not really care how well your model generalizes to new chromosomes. Because it's not like there are new human chromosomes we are going to discover. That typically what happens is that you want to make predictions for the same chromosomes in the test set and the training set just in a new cell type. Uh, And so the pitfall that we describe is that because a lot of these biological activities are similar from one cell type to the next, just using the average activity of your label in the training set is a very good predictor for your test set. And we had to do this in the avocado paper and in the follow-up work, where basically we said if we're trying to predict DNAs, uh, which is one of these assays in some held-out cell type, a good predictor of that will probably just be the average DNA activity in all of these cell types in our training set, and this is something that we don't see a lot of people comparing against, but it's actually surprisingly powerful. Um, so one of the things that we did is that there was a recent uh, there was a recent Encode Dream Challenge, which is basically one of these grand predictive challenges challenges that are occasionally hosted, and it was about predicting transcription factor binding there were some number of dozens of participants, and the top four participants have been analyzed fairly thoroughly now. What we found is that for predicting one transcription factor, CTCF, in iPSC cells, that the average activity of CTCF in the training cell types beat two of the top four participants and was very close to the third. Uh, so even in one of these grand challenges that there is still some some predictive task where the average activity is beating the predictive models. And to be clear, this average activity doesn't involve training a model or anything. It's just averaging your labels at each locus. And so if I'm trying to predict, you know, gene A in some cell type, I'm using the average activity of gene A in all of the um, training cell types. But the pitfall isn't exactly that you... Um, might not be beating the average activity. That's not really a pitfall, it's just uh, um, you know, not baselining correctly. The pitfall is that if you're using features that are invariant across cell types, like nucleotide sequence, a sufficiently complicated model may be just memorizing this average activity instead of learning anything biologically relevant. If you're not comparing to the average activity baseline, you may see improved performance as a function of model complexity and think that your model is picking up on increasingly complex trends when all you're doing is just memorizing the average activity. But you can imagine that the nucleotide sequence for gene A is going to be very distinct from gene B or C. You know, just take the sequence along the entire gene, or in the promoter region, or whatever. And so if you're giving the model a whole bunch of examples where the epigenomic data does change from one training cell type to the next, but the nucleotide sequence doesn't change from one cell type to the next, that the model may simply discard the epigenomic information and use the nucleotide sequence to basically learn a hash of what the average activity for that gene is. We evaluate models in three different settings. The first is the cross-chromosomal setting, where you train on some chromosomes and make predictions in others. And then the cross-cell type setting, where you're making predictions on the same loci that you're training on just in different cell types. And the last one is in the cross-chromosome-cross-cell type hybrid setting where we use the same models that were trained in the cross-cell type setting. We just evaluate on new uh, chromosomes that, it wasn't, that the model wasn't trained on. And so what we find is that if we use, say, nucleotide sequence alone to predict gene expression across in the cross-chromosomal setting, like we do okay, not great. And this matches the literature where there are some nucleotide motifs that are, you know that are predictive of gene expression, but not nearly as well as epigenomic data, which is known to be very predictive. In the cross-cell type setting, what we find is that if we use nucleotide sequence alone, that we get increasingly good performance as we uh, increase model complexity, even seeing increased performance up to like 100 million parameters in our neural network. But this plateaus as we get to the average activity baseline. It never beats the average activity baseline. But if you're not comparing against it, it may just look like it's doing better and better. However, if we take the exact same models that we just evaluated and just saw that they increased in performance as we increased model complexity, and we evaluate them on some held-out chromosome, the performance vanishes. And this is because they're not learning predictive uh, motifs of nucleotide sequence that are predictive of gene expression. They're just memorizing which genes are typically active and which genes are typically not. And so if you expose them to some new chromosome, they have no idea what's going on in those genes. And so the point of our paper is that you have to compare against the average activity baseline. First, because it's typically very strong, and you want to make sure your predictive model can beat it. But secondly, because if you aren't careful, your model may just be memorizing it. And so you want to make sure that you're actually beating it before releasing a predictive model into the wild.
0: Can there be a case? So you're referring to the average, right? So like the arithmetic mean or something uh but um could it be that in some other cases there could be a different statistic that is a better predictor so how do you know which of these to take or m- maybe there is some something like an average something like a um sufficient statistic different from an average but which your neural network can learn but you yourself don't know what that statistic is yeah, so uh, taking the
1: average is certainly the simplest statistic you can use. I think that, uh, I mean, taking the average of values minimizes the mean squared error. You know, the like the average is the minimizing the mean squared error within, and so I think that that should be
0: sufficient to try to control for this. Right. So, so the statistic is a f- just a function of your objective function or your error function rather than. Something inherent to to the data, which I, I guess makes sense.
1: Exactly. Like if you're using mean absolute error instead of mean squared error, you'd want to use the median.
0: It, it's just uh, yeah, depending on how you look at this. Like looking for the from the classical statistics viewpoint, the, this seems obvious. But uh, on the other hand, these neural networks can learn all sorts of crazy stuff, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting that they can or cannot come up with anything better like could, could they combine some other data i don't know
1: well i think that this this type of issue is obvious only once you stop to think about it that even we you know we were doing this for a little bit and only stumbled upon the issue once we were really analyzing our data I know there are lots of other pe- there are people out there who do compare to the average activity baseline or something similar to that. So it's not that nobody is comparing against this, but I'm just worried that there are other people out there who are very good intentioned but are simply unaware of this. And this is something that I see as we get a lot more computational expertise uh, into uh, bioinformatics. And there certainly are papers out there that make cross cell type predictions and don't compare against well, what happens if we just use the activity in a related cell type?
0: Right. Yeah, I was just thinking that uh, if you have just the uh, the expression data, then probably the best you can do given the min square error is the average. But uh, if you then add some other covariates like uh, epigenetic data, then... Um, could it still... So I'm I'm trying to figure out what the bad thing here is. Is the bad thing that we're not outperforming the average or is the bad thing that we're learning, we're sort of over-memorizing the nucleotide sequences? In principle, we could be the average baseline by incorporating some other data while still doing this ugly memorization of the sequence data.
1: Yeah, so it's definitely a bad thing to not beat the average activity baseline when you want people to be using your predictions. If you are releasing a model that says, I can predict, let's say, promoter-enhancer interactions in a new cell type, use my predictions until we have experimental data, you need to make sure that your predictions outperform the average activity. Because if I, as a downstream user, could get better predictions by just averaging the experimental data we have rather than using your complicated model, I'm incentivized to use the average activity because it's simple. Naturally, that's not going to capture anything biologically interesting because you're going to get the same predictions for each of your cell types. But if it's better performance than your model, then your, the predictions that your model made may not be practically useful. Uh, the pitfall, though, which, you know, our, our paper is titled a pitfall that you, um, in building machine learning models. The pitfall is that you may inadvertently be memorizing the average activity. And so that's why you have to compare against the average activity. That's why we think you have to compare against the average activity.
0: But then the question is if you beat the average activity does that mean you you haven't fallen into the pitfall? Right because you could still be memorizing the the sequence just just doing something a little bit smarter than taking an average using some additional data.
1: Right, it certainly um you you certainly shouldn't compare against the average activity, and the second you start beating it by even a little bit, just declare victory. You should be analyzing your models a little bit more than that. Um, But the idea is that once you're beating the average activity baseline, you are learning some cell type specific signal. And so the question of whether or not you're memorizing it a little bit, you probably are. These complicated neural networks end up doing weird things. And I don't think it's necessary to factor out any type of Memorization of the average activity, but there are ways that you can circumvent it. The first is that if you include the average activity as a feature into your model, then it has no need to try to memorize this because you're giving it the information directly. Um, And so, in that case, what you'd have to do is you'd have to measure the average activity of a set of held-out training cell types that are held out from the from the cell types that your model is trained on, just to avoid any train-test leakage. Um and when you get that, then you would if your model has this average activity, then first it should be simpler to beat because all you'd have to do is output the same thing that you input to get the exact same activity. And so any improvement upon that should be improvement in performance. And the second is that you can actually phrase the task not as predicting the value, the biological activity directly that you care about, but in predicting the difference from the average activity. And so if what you're saying is like you have some housekeeping gene that's active in every cell type and you want to make a prediction for it, then you're probably going to predict that it's not different from the average activity, and so just like a zero. And so that will cause your model to focus on learning uh, patterns that are predictive of differences between the cell type you care about and the average activity. And so, you know, these both utilize the average activity explicitly, one, as an input to the model, and second, as changing what the output of the model is. And so if you're not beating the average activity, you might consider uh, using it using these in this manner. And there have been some papers recently that have shown that by explicitly doing that, they get significantly better performance.
0: But also there is this uh, idea that you talked about where you can do uh, cross-chromosomal predictions. And this seems to be completely immune to the pitfall because... There's no point of of memorizing the sequence. It's it's a completely different sequence. The only thing you can memorize is like the specific uh, regulatory elements or the specific coding sequences if if they matter, but nothing more than that, right?
1: Yeah, so uh, that's definitely true that you're not going to fall into this pitfall in the uh, the cross-chromosomal manner. Uh, The issue there is that it really depends on what your model is trying to do. If what you're trying to do is build a model to see, can I predict gene expression from, you know, this measurement of chromosome architecture, then certainly doing the cross-chromosomal setting is valid because you're seeing, can I do this? Um, What is the connection between these? Or like if I give 100 measurements of epigenomic state and I want to say which ones are important for predicting gene expression, then the cross-chromosomal setting may be useful. The problem is that you can't evaluate your model in the cross-chromosomal setting and then say, there, I'm done. Now you should use my predictions in the cross-cell type setting. You have to explicitly memo- uh, evaluate your model in the cross-cell type setting if you're going to be making claims about using your model in the cross-chrom- uh, cross-cell type setting.
0: Right, but uh, if, what, what if you validate using this… Um I don't remember how you call it in the paper, but basically where you have simultaneously cross-cell type and cross-chromosome.
1: Yeah, so one of the things you can do is this, we call it the hybrid approach, where you are evaluating on both a cell type you didn't train on and a chromosome you didn't train on. And so it's cross chromosomal and cross-cell type.
0: Yeah. Isn't that the gold standard? I think that it is a
1: useful way of identifying whether or not you've fallen into the pitfall, because if you have fallen into the pitfall, then there's going to be a wild divergence between your performance in the cross-cell type setting and the hybrid setting. That being said, I think there's some disagreement about whether or not it's the gold standard or not. For me, the idea is basically that at some point, you're going to need to uh, provide predictions for the entire genome. And so either you have a model that was trained on some set of chromosomes and is making predictions on the same set of chromosomes. In, this, in, this, and in that case, you have to evaluate in the cross-cell type setting and may fall prey to this pitfall. Or you'll have to be training an ensemble of models, each of which was trained on a subset of chromosomes and made predictions in some held-out chromosome. Um, and it's an ensemble such that, you know, you have each chromosome held out to one of these models and then you can make predictions entirely in the hybrid setting. I don't think that's necessary or even a thing that you should aim to do. I think that what you should be aiming to do is just evaluate your model in the cross-cell type or the hybrid approach or whatever approach you would like, but make sure that you're evaluating your model on the same set of loci that you're going to be providing people predictions for. If you are providing people prediction, there's nothing wrong with training your model on uh, every single chromosome, and then making predictions at every single chromosome using the same model. As long as you evaluate your model based on its ability to do that, and so that it outperforms using the average activity.
0: So if I understand correctly, you're saying that we shouldn't use the hybrid approach for evaluating the model if we are going to predict across the whole genome?
1: If you are building a model that is trained on every chromosome with the goal of using that single model to make predictions at every position on the chrom- uh, along the genome, the hybrid setting is not sufficient to show that your model isn't overfitting. But it can be a useful tool in proving that your model isn't doing that. But it shouldn't be used alone. But we include that setting primarily to demonstrate that as you increase the number of parameters, it looks like in the cross-cell type setting, you are getting better performance if you're falling into this pitfall, but that this performance isn't real biological activity.
0: So if I'm going to predict something along the whole genome, what I what I think I'm getting from you is that it's sometimes useful to actually learn something or even memorize something uh, sequence-specific or gene-specific as long as the performance is good enough, as long as the performance is much higher than average, then it's it's fine. So it's bad to, to fall into the pitfall, but it's okay to to step into the pitfall a little bit. Yeah,
1: yeah. That um, basically if we knew everything about cell state, we would be able to make predictions about gene expression using nothing except measurements of cell state for that specific cell type. You know that's that's a given. That if we knew everything about how if we had all the measurements possible, we wouldn't, the average activity wouldn't be a thing. But the fact that the average activity is a thing means that we don't have enough information about cell state yet. We don't know everything there is out there. And so there are going to be these biases which arise because we don't know everything about the cell state. Like with housekeeping genes, that if we could always predict that a housekeeping gene was going to be active based on whether or not had an activating mark next to it, then we would always beat average activity. And so until we have all of these measurements of cell state that allow us to, you know, routinely um, overcome average activity, then we have to compare against it. because this is basically saying, um, this is basically saying that we are making do with the information that we have but there's still more work to be done. There are still more experiments to be um, performed. Like in the last few years, measurements of chromatin architecture have become very common to collect. And these basically were driven by the hypothesis that regulatory elements can influence genes that are very far away because even though they're far away in the sequence of the genome, they are very close together in three-dimensional space. And several papers have shown that this is true, that you might have an enhancing element that will increase gene expression. And it's millions of nucleotides away. But in three-dimensional space, it's right next to the gene that it regulates. And so uh, when you have – this was just some type of information that epigenomic information that we had previously was not going to capture. And so once we added in that type of information, you saw improved performance on a variety of models that previously – Uh, we're not able to account for these long-range dependencies. And so I'm anticipating that there's going to be more, you know, cleaner uh, information about the 3D structure of the genome, more different types of information that are going to improve models to the point where the average activity baseline is not a thing. But until we have that type of information, the average activity baseline basically represents all the information about the cell we don't know, Uh, all these biases that we can't model simply from the epigenomic information that we have and so it's important to compare against when you that if you're building a model to get back to your question that is trying to make predictions across the genome you have to compare against it you're probably not going to be totally ignoring it um, if you have these features like nucleotide sequence that are cell type independent and so i guess like you said it's okay to kind of step into the pitfall in the sense that it's okay to be aware that this is an issue and to utilize it you know to leverage it to build better better predictive models but it's not okay to
0: ignore it that makes sense and in uh, avocado is the genome sequence one of the covariates that you use i I guess it, it might be like one of the assays
1: Yeah, so nucleotide sequence actually is not included in the avocado model. That all of our predictions about epigenomic state are done using only epigenomic state in other cell types or other types of epigenomic information. You know, this is a natural extension that people would want to include nucleotide sequence in some manner, and we're actually investigating it in our cross-species imputation because we think it's going to be particularly valuable there. What we found is that actually we don't really need nucleotide sequence in order to make these predictions that we can encode, you know, not actual TF binding sites, but some notion of TF binding sites, simply by using hundreds of TF ChIP-seq experiments. You know, it makes sense. Like, if you have a region that a lot of transcription factors are binding to, that's probably going to be some sort of transcription factor binding site. And so, um, if you then try to make predictions for some new transcription factor, that you might want to be aware that that site has a lot of transcription factors binding to it. And that's you know, canonically, that's done using nucleotide sequence where you identify the specific motif that biophysically interacts with the protein. But here it's done entirely by saying like, okay, it's an entirely in a data-driven manner, saying lots of stuff is binding here, so be aware of this site.
0: Interesting. Cool, Jacob. I think uh, this information will be very useful to people who develop their own models, develop and evaluate their own models. Um, and certainly the um, uh, the tool you're working on, Avocado, will be very useful to practitioners in the field. Uh, before we wrap this up, is there anything else you want to talk about?
1: I think that we're good. You can find the pre-trained Avocado model and the imputations uh, and the imputations for it on my GitHub repository. That we have two papers out so far that describe the usage of Avocado in learning latent representations and yielding imputations. And I'd be more than happy to answer any questions that anyone has about the model, the average activity, baseline, and anything else that we've discussed today.
0: Perfect. And uh, we'll put all the links to these resources uh, in the show notes for this episode. And uh, Jacob, thanks a lot for coming to the podcast. Thank you again
1: for having me.